here. Um, my first chance to be in this kind of a venue, this kind of a worship space, and I really, really love this. Um, my husband Cody and I attend worship at North Haven, and nothing against North Haven, but I felt a spirit here that I haven't felt in a while. I wish he were with me, because uh, I think he'd feel it too, and it might be good for him. Uh, we've both been struggling some with what's been going on in Methodism, as I suspect some of you have been, and some of this sermon might be coming from that. As Jonathan mentioned, um, and thank you again, Jonathan and Crystal, for having me, um, I'm an ordained Methodist minister still, even though I'm also an out and married gay man. I, that happened partly because I decided to leave the closet in 2012 before that general conference, deciding it was time to stop being an ally and take off the mask. And so retired early and came out, started dating Cody not long after that, and our relationship is about seven years. Our marriage was two years in April. I'm still ordained because apparently once you're retired, they don't care much anymore. <laughs> uh, at least that's the way I interpret it. But I sometimes think, why am I still here? In fact, I'm sometimes asked that. I currently work at Barnes & Noble, as does Cody. And a lot of my co-workers are folks who either have never been in the church or have left the church behind. There's a lot of... Um, Queer kids, uh, genderqueer, gay, lesbian, as well as straight, where I find that Barnes & Noble's staff is more of a true rainbow than any other staff I've worked with. And for a lot of them, the first reaction when I first started working for Barnes & Noble was, we thought Methodism was the liberal church, and they're always surprised. Um, I find now that I've been with Barnes & Noble long enough to where they're surprised when they find out I'm clergy. Um, I mentioned to someone that came up yesterday, well, could you maybe work a few extra hours? And I said, well, I really need to get this sermon ready because I'm preaching in Denton tomorrow. And one of my bookseller colleagues said, you're a preacher? And I actually kind of took that as a compliment. <laughs> um, that tells you a little bit about myself. Maybe since I've done that much, go ahead and I'm going to do a little more of that before I dive into the scripture and Robert Frost. As Jonathan said, um, I am a storyteller. I love story. I'm an English major before I was a theology major, and I sometimes think if the Holy Spirit hadn't done one of her tricks and decided to call me on that strange road we call ministry, I probably should have taught English somewhere. Um, and I sometimes wonder if the Holy Spirit knew what she was doing, but she tends to. <laughs> but a little more about me. I was baptized as an infant in the Methodist Church. I've never been anything but Methodist, which is probably one reason why I still am. The Methodist Church taught me what I understand about grace, about love. I can remember visiting other churches when I was in Boy Scouts and coming home. My mom would tell me, my late mother would tell me, she said, one time you came from visiting another church, which I will not name, and said, the preacher yelled at us the whole time. Doesn't he know God loves us? And I think my church shaped me that way. I was lucky in that. My husband, Cody, not so lucky. He's not here. He might be mad at me for saying this, but I think he would agree. He himself told me once, you were raised by a friendlier church. He was raised in a fundamentalist household. And so coming to grips with his orientation, 
wasn't so much a personal struggle, but it was a faith struggle. And while the pain of what's going on in Methodism today towards gay people hurts both of us, I think the pain goes even deeper with him because it rips open the old wounds. Raised in the church early, I first felt called to ministry in junior high. I don't recommend that to anybody. Because once you get, if you are thinking about going into ministry in junior high, you get typecast early. I was the good kid. Some ways that worked for me. But that also means you are the chaplain of every school organization you're in from that point on because nobody else wants to pray in public. But anyway, into the ministry, high school to college to seminary to church. Never really knew anything else. But on some personal background where some of the issues hit me personally, obviously you already know some of that, I graduated from high school in 1972, and that does date me, but it also happens to be the year that the Book of Discipline first put the language against homosexuality into its writing. It didn't bother me much going through seminary, graduating in 80, getting ordained, because nobody really paid much attention. It's gotten tenser. I ultimately served some churches that had openly gay folks. I ultimately served a church that had openly gay folks and virulently homophobic folks in the same congregation. That helped lead me to the place where I finally realized, hey, it's time to take off the mask. Never regretted that, but I miss ministry still because... It's not the church that calls us. It's God. And sometimes God has very different ideas about that than people. One thing I have to remind myself often is that the Methodist church is ultimately legislated by people. And sometimes God is trying to break through their thick skulls. Which leads me to Robert Frost. Robert Frost wrote a poem called Mending Wall. Cody warned me once when I did this sermon at North Haven, or a similar sermon, he said, don't read the whole poem. I know you want to, you're an English major, you want to read the whole thing, don't. So I won't. But Robert Frost started with these words. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen groundswell under it and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The gaps, I mean, no one has seen them made or heard them made, but at spring mending time, we find them there. And the poem goes on to tell how Robert Frost, in that New England setting with his stone wall, lets his neighbor know it's time to mend the wall. And the neighbor comes and they start putting the rocks back in place that the winter breezes and thaws have broken apart. And the neighbor thinks, well, you need a wall. He keeps saying, good walls make good neighbors. And Frost tries to argue with him. He says, you have an orchard. I have cows. Why do we even need a wall in the first place? Why don't we just leave it down? Something there is that doesn't love a wall. And the neighbor just keeps saying, good walls make good neighbors. And toward the end of the poem, Frost says this, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out 
and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. When Jonathan told me about your series of big story, small story, the way the stories of the Bible intersect with our story, and sometimes those small stories, I would think, also interact with the large story. Because there's a lot of stories in the Bible I would never want to bring up as ways to live your life. But I love the fact that they're in there, the stories that make you uncomfortable that we never teach in kids' Sunday school, because they show us how human we are and that God works with human beings. But I also love the fact that it seems like the Bible itself will argue with the Bible. It almost seems like whenever the people of the Bible think God is telling them, build a wall, there's a story sooner or later that tears that wall down. I know you've looked at some of those stories already, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, where one part of the Bible says, no eunuchs can come into the temple. And then a prophet says, yes, they will. They'll have more inheritance than anyone else. And then Philip baptizes one. You see the Bible chipping away at its own rules that got set because something there is that doesn't like a wall. And that something is often the Holy Spirit. I love a lot of those wall-tearing-down stories. The fact that the Bible says no Moabites, and yet David's great-grandmother was a Moabite. What would we do if we hadn't had Ruth? The Bible says, at one point, women shouldn't talk, but what would we have without the Virgin Mary singing Magnificat to Elizabeth? Or Mary Magdalene going and giving the good news of the resurrection? Over and over and over again. This story of Simon Peter in the book of Acts that I chose today from Acts 10 is a strong case in point. Because... Though we often forget this, all of the early apostles were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Simon Peter, James, John, all of the twelve were Jewish. Magdalene was Jewish. Mary was Jewish. The early group at Pentecost were all Jews. They might have been speaking different languages, but they were all Jewish. Reaching out beyond those walls of what was accepted, God's chosen people, took some doing. Just like it sometimes takes some doing to break out the walls of the church. Simon Peter is one of my favorite characters because Peter is so lovable. He's kind of like a puppy who jumps in and then gets his nose slapped because he shouldn't have done that. And he jumps back and then next time he's jumping in again. At the Last Supper, it's Peter who says, I'll never deny you. Even if all the twelve deny you, I never will. Oh, Peter, yes, you will. Three times before the night's over. And he does. Oh, Lord, I can walk on water just like you. Call me to come. Okay, Peter, come on. Oh, gosh, those waves are big. And he sinks. And then this story. It takes Peter a dream and a vision to realize he really should go to a Gentile. Now, before the text I gave for the screen, there's a little bit at the very beginning of Acts 10 that actually starts the story. And it's interesting in itself because it's one of those God-breaking-walls-down moments. The story is actually put in motion by God sending an angel to a Roman centurion. 
And for a moment, with what we've just said about all the early disciples being Jewish, get your mind around that for a second. A Roman centurion getting an angel from the God of Israel? A Roman centurion is a commander of the enemy forces. A commander of a hundred. The Romans have occupied the country. Keep control of it with an iron boot. And God sends an angel to Cornelius? And not only does God send an angel to him, when the angel says, go send to Simon Peter, a fisherman staying in Joppa with a tanner, Cornelius actually does it. How many Roman soldiers would send messengers to a fisherman from Galilee? But Cornelius does. Which leads to the text that we'll have on our screens. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey, And approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, Suddenly, the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. I think from childhood, when I first heard that story, it's not one of the most common stories we hear, but the first time I heard it, I loved it because it's so dramatic. Luke loves drama. When he sends the Spirit at Pentecost, he sends it with wind and tongues of flame and many languages. He doesn't just have it breathe gently on you. He likes drama, and so with Peter. We've got to get Peter a vision. We've got to get through Peter's skull. We've got to really convince him that he's supposed to go with Cornelius' servants. How will we do that? Well, first, I love the reality of this. Let's get Peter up on the roof when it's noon and he's hungry. And let's give him a dream. And what does he dream of? Food. Apparently, the weight of this apostle's heart is through his stomach. And then we'll test his kosher kill and eat. Oh, I've never eaten anything on kosher. What I call clean, don't you call unclean. What I call clean, don't you call profane. And in case you don't get it, Peter, we're going to repeat it one, two, three times. And then Cornelius' servants show up. Sometimes it takes a while to get through our skulls that God sees things very differently than we And so Peter gets up, he goes with them, he actually says, God has shown me I must not call anything unclean. And so the next day he got up and he went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, to bridge to the next section, Peter comes in, Cornelius actually falls 
on his face before him. And Peter says, don't worship me, I'm just a man. Why did you send for me? And Cornelius tells him about his vision, and Peter starts preaching his sermon. And Peter actually says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. But does Peter really believe that yet? And so he starts preaching his typical post-Pentecost, accept Jesus sermon. And he gets the best altar call any preacher ever got. In fact, he never gets to the altar call. He never gets to the final hymn. This is what happens. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God, just like at Pentecost. That's the point of that. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. Peter baptizes Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his entire Gentile household, slave and free alike. Kind of a beginning of what Paul will later write about no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, you are all one. It happens at Cornelius' home first because the Holy Spirit doesn't like those walls. And if Peter doesn't get the vision, the Holy Spirit's going to seize them before they even get baptized. And lest we miss, I didn't actually give this text, but lest we miss why that's so important in Acts. When Peter gets back to Jerusalem, some have heard, you actually consorted with Gentiles, you ate with them, you baptized them. Peter, what are you thinking? And Peter tells them the whole vision. He says, let me tell you about my dream. But then he says, if God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed in Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Who was I that I could hinder God? And they agree. One of the things Luke does in Acts, when you look at that whole story, he shifts the focus pretty soon after this from Peter to Paul, and Paul becomes the hero. But one of the things Luke wants to say is Peter and Paul, as much as they might sometimes have disagreed, were ultimately one, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I mentioned earlier that I miss ministry every day. When I get up here and stand and preach, I feel like I'm exercising gifts that were given me. I always hope it feels like that on that side too. <laughs> um, but ultimately, that's not in our hands. <laughs> um, I always love preaching, teaching, working with folks. And I think back on my own ministry. And I think of the places I could have made a difference if I had not only been single 
and of a certain age where people began to guess. But what might have happened if I could have stood in the pulpit as I am now as an openly gay man? What might have that have meant to gay members, to a queer teen figuring out who she is? What might that have meant to other people whom God is calling? Sometimes when I go to conference, a lot of folks will come up to me and say, we're so glad you're here. We're so excited you're here. It's so important for you to be here. And I trust my colleagues to work to make the changes that must be made for equality, full equality, where folks like me are no longer second class, because we are right now. When Cody and I got married at North Haven, the friend who did the wedding and our pastor who assisted were brought up on complaint for doing our wedding. Sometimes I want to say, and I probably need to say more often to my colleagues, my straight colleagues, until you have experienced being married and having the officiants brought up on complaint, you don't know what it's like to live in my skin. Until you know what it means to be yourself fully in the pulpit and then no longer have a pulpit as a result, you don't know what it means to live in my skin. And until you're willing to live in my skin, this is true for all of us, isn't it? Until we're really willing to be taught. I work with two folks at my Barnes & Noble location who... I've never actually asked them this, but I think they would identify perhaps as genderqueer. They, uh, I don't think identify as trans, but they choose the pronoun that might be different from their biological birth. And we're all good with that at my store. But I said to one of them one time, I said, if ever I make a mistake, yeah, I'm a gay guy, but I'm cisgendered. I'm a white male. I live in privilege because of that. If ever I make a mistake, teach me because I want to be better. Teach me the right pronouns. Teach me the right address. Teach me what it's like to live in your skin. That's what it requires. I think one of the ways God breaks down walls, and I love the hymn we started with. I didn't know that was going to be chosen. Um, I made a note and I lost the note, but that tearing down of walls, that tear down those walls, God doesn't like them. Be our wall breaker, be our veil shatterer. I've always believed that the kingdom of God can't fully come until all God's people are in that kingdom, in that commonwealth, whatever word we want to use, in that love of God, and know they are. That would include agnostic, that would include atheist. I don't think you have to believe in God to be treated as someone who is loved by God. Robert Frost ends his poem with his neighbor, an image where they are rebuilding the wall. And he tries to get the neighbor, we don't have the wall, have the wall anymore, but the neighbor thinks, we have to. Good walls make good neighbors. Why do we think that? And there's a passage, I didn't actually give this for the screens, but he comes, Frost says, I see him there bringing a stone grasped firmly by the top in each hand like an old stone savage 
armed. He moves in darkness, it seems to me. Not of words only, not of woods only and the shade of trees. He moves in darkness. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. That something is the Holy Spirit. And I believe she won't stop tearing them down until there's not one rock left standing. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, even though walls make us feel safe sometimes, walls can destroy, can separate. Sometimes what they destroy is our very inner being. Tear down the walls that divide us from our true selves. Tear down the walls that divide us from each other. Help us learn. Help us grow. Help us be able to risk truly loving. In the name of the wall breaker, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.